1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am here in our studios in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. Spread out across America, we have our great panel for today's show. In Wyoming, we have Georgetown University's Rosa Brooks, who is busily not writing her book. Correct?
0: Uh, no, I'm I'm writing. I'm writing now. I'm writing, David. I promise.
1: Okay, that doesn't sound very plausible. <laughs> At the Brookings Institution, just off of scenic Dupont Circle, we have Susan Hennessy of Lawfare and Brookings. Who is busily not writing her book?
2: That's true. Although unlike Rosa, if she doesn't write this book, she will still have written a book. So uh, I I rank myself a little lower.
1: Well, what is your book about?
2: It is Ben Wittes and I are writing a book on the office of the presidency in relation to its current occupants. Susan,
0: being a little older than you just means that there are even more books that I have not written than you.
2: I have not written so many books. This sp- is both comforting and not at all comforting.
1: <laughs> and speaking of someone who has written some books, but has also not written a lot of books, we have Ed Luce in Chicago, Illinois.
3: Hello. Yeah, I don't have a, um, a Dark Night of the Soul. I'm not writing at the moment.
1: Why aren't you writing, Ed? At least Susan and Rosa are trying.
0: It's, yeah, Ed, why aren't but you least guilty about not slacker?
3: I know. I'm being a slacker. Well, I
2: hope you feel bad uh, I about it.
3: My great fear of writing um, books at the moment, on the kinds of things I cover, is that um, events just make it irrelevant before you finish the first draft.
0: Yeah, well, maybe that... I could tell my publisher that. I could say, "Well, I was going to write the book, then I realized it was really irrelevant." But well, just, I'm just going to do it.
2: I'm going to do it choose-your-own-adventure style, where there are multiple endings, and then the reader can just decide. You know, for impeachment turn to page 45 (laughs) for the end of the republic go to page 60
0: maybe we could just make the newspaper like that that would be uh, that would be an improvement over the no
3: i you know
1: i like that you're gonna
3: write for the first 45 pages susan it takes 45 (laughs) pages to get to impeachment
2: yeah that's that's it's an accelerated uh pace
1: (laughs) i because the fact is impeachment is not a sure thing nor is um, the end of the republic. I, you know, have been long advocating that everybody who cares about America should offer the president a cheeseburger whenever they see him. Um, because I think this, you know, how many cheese? <laughs> That's really
0: mean. Yeah, you know, the Secret Service is going to listen to this, David, and they're going to be contacting you. Yeah, Wishing well, cheeseburgers on that man is not nice at all.
1: Well, you know, yeah, I was just I, being I'm just hospitable.
3: I've just been asked, I can't, FT policy is you can't mention obituaries because of libel law. You don't want anything that you've written about somebody who's going to be dead getting out before they're dead. But I've just been asked to put into the system an obituary of somebody very, very prominent. Um, And normally I would sort of pretend I didn't receive the email, avoid it, ignore it, procrastinate. But in this case. Uh, it really cheered up my day, and I said I would love to write that person's obituary. <laughs> but I'm not going to say here it is.
2: <laughs> oh,
0: Ed.
1: <laughs> let, me, let me ask you a question, Ed. Does the word "orange" appear in the obituary anywhere?
3: It hasn't been written yet, so oh, I am d- still procrastinating. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, don't wait too long on that one. Um, so, look, let's uh, let's let's get down to business. There's been a lot of news here. And one of the reasons I'm very glad that Susan is with us is a lot of it has uh, touched upon this intersection between the president of the United States and the national security community with whom he has had a kind of a rough relationship, even from early in the campaign, when he embraced this language about the deep state, when he attacked the intelligence community and so forth. And I think you may recall, Susan, we talked about it even way back then. But. On, an, on, an, on another podcast. But here we are, and uh, in the past few days, the president has really sort of doubled down, gone after the uh, security clearances of, uh, or set, gone after the security clearance of John Brennan, the former head of the CIA, and threatened to go after the security clearances of a number of other people, including, by the way, people like James Comey, who, who don't actually have a security clearance. But this president stops at nothing. Um, and, and the question is, is this a hiccup? Are we just using this to fill the time till the Manafort um, um, verdict comes out or until the next wave of indictments? Or do you think this is something a little more significant in terms of how this U.S. government is likely to function under Donald Trump?
2: So I think it is both a deliberate distraction strategy uh, on the part of the White House. I think that they timed, uh, as the Washington Post has reported, uh, timed this announcement about Brennan's security clearance in order to distract from the Avarosa book uh, news cycle, which we've all just endured. Um, so on one hand, I, I do think it sort of it, it falls into that, you know, this is just part of their PR machine. At the same time, I think it is uh it is troubling and really significant because it is part of this broader trend of the politicization of uh, of national security, of sort of uh, essentially, you know, Trump can't even wrap his mind around this notion that there's such a thing as professionalism and there is the ability to separate one's personal uh, political views from their ability to do their job. And that actually is the foundation and the cornerstone of huge parts of the national security community. And so I think that this represents sort of a, the next dramatic erosion. Um, You know, look, that said, you know, security clearances exist so that individuals can assist the United States government, right? They're not rewards for prior service. And and some of the ways that people have been talking about them, I, I think a little bit Misunderstand the purpose. Uh, that said, you know, stripping John Brennan's security clearance. One, I, I do think there are legitimate sort of First Amendment questions, and it's clearly calculated both to further politicize intelligence work, um, uh, and you know, just to uh, to to generally undermine uh, you know the integrity of of the national security community and to chill speech not by people like John Brennan um who are going to be fine uh, but for people lower down who who I think have a lot more at stake uh and have uh, would be would have really serious professional consequences you know were they to lose their security clearances
1: well Rosa you know Susan's touched upon a number of the problems with this one is it's uh chilling freedom of expression within the government two is it's robbing the government of the expertise of people who have these clearances who might therefore be able to provide advice based on what they, the the information they got. Um, And uh, three, of course, it may may produce a breakdown in the relations um, between the president and key advisors, or uh, as a result of one and two, cause those advisors not to be um, uh, as Direct with the President as they might otherwise be of these, which worries you the most?
0: Um, I think the the chilling effect worries me most. Um, I, I mean Susan is of course right there you know you don't have some kind of entitlement to keep your security clearance forever and ever um, and it's it's also I you know I think another common mis, misapprehension that a lot of people, who, who haven't worked in that field have is that if you have a security clearance, you can sort of waltz into the CIA anytime you feel like it and demand to look at classified documents. You know, that's not the case. You know, you still only see what somebody currently in the government decides it is useful to them to have you see. Um, you, you know, you, you, don't, you don't get to just access whatever you want. But, but, but that being said, you know, it's clearly, you know, it's a thing of value to many people as well, you know, that that it can be the difference for many former public servants in, you know, being able to get a job in that field, many jobs in that field, even the private sector require security clearances. Uh, it's a difference between able to get a job or not. It's a difference also between, you know, even being invited to speak at certain conferences or not, because there are plenty of conferences not conferences themselves that are held at a secret or top secret classification level where you can't talk to people in that community about certain kinds of issues unless you have the right clearance so it's a thing of value and 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 what is you know Susan probably has a better sense I'd love to hear her talk about the the details of the laws governing this and whether Brennan's potential litigation has a chance in her view but to me in some ways the analogy I was thinking of here was was is like things like um uh, choosing a jury, you know, when when lawyers in a trial uh, choose jury members, they each get a certain number of peremptory challenges. They can they can say no, I don't like that juror. And the the traditional uh, language that courts have used to describe that is that you know you can use your peremptory challenges for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. You know that you can just not like the look on a juror's face, and that's good enough. But the one thing you can't do is use your peremptory challenges as a way to get rid, you know, as a a screen to get rid of jurors for prohibited reasons, such as getting rid of black people or getting rid of women or something like that. You know, that if you if you use those, you you know, you have a total right to use those challenges, but not for a specific prohibited reason. And this strikes me as, as as at least, you know, in the abstract being kind of similar, you know, can Trump, can Trump take away people's security clearances? Sure he can. Um, but could he say, for instance, I'm going to deny security clearances to all black former officials? No, I don't think he could. You know, and similarly, when it becomes very clear from his own comments that he's doing this, uh, not because Brennan has leaked information or misused classified information, but simply because he objects to the content of Brennan's First Amendment protected speech, that's when it strikes me that you know you have a potential legal problem as well.
1: So that you know th- those are two of the levels that this works as a problem. Of course, the third level is the political level. Ed, you're out there. You're actually in Chicago, the heartlands of America, Um, and perhaps you've spoken to some average hey, Americans.
0: Hey, are you dissing Wyoming?
1: Um, <laughs> I no, but there's no people in Wyoming, and I'm. This is about talking to people. Have you seen? <laughs> oh. Have you seen? I enough- have.
0: I, I have seen at least two or three other people here in Wyoming.
1: Yeah, I think that's actually how many people are in Wyoming. But Ed, the the question is, does this resonate? Is this a, you know, it sounds very inside the beltway. Well, this is you know the you know the laws and the legalities and getting on boards and all this other kind of thing. Um, and oh, those poor people in the intelligence community. But you know, does it matter to an average American?
3: Well, I suspect it'll matter the kind of people turning up in Wyoming soon, which is the global um, economic elite for the for the Jackson Hole annual um, conference. So you might bump into those words. <laughs> uh,
0: no, but... no, I'm very far away from the elites. I'm all <laughs> by myself here in Grable Wyoming.
3: Oh, you're sequestered, as you should be writing a book. Um, uh, David, I, I, I would love to say that I think it's, you know, It is a topic of conversation in the diners and, um, you know, on on um, the the freeways of America. But I don't I don't think it is. Um, I think it it should be. It's it, it's an issue of uh, deep concern. It's more than just a canary in the coal mine here. We've now got sort of 20 months or so of sort of progressive chipping away at norms and guardrails um, of the of the American Constitution. And this is just another. And it's, you know, not just um it's not just former um, senior national security officials that Trump has been uh, considering removing their security clearance from, their classified intelligence clearance from, but also um, reportedly, according to The New Yorker, even Barack Obama, um, he considered striking off. Um, so this is, this is definitely uh, more than the thin end of the wedge. We're sort of further into the wedge than just the thin end of it. Um, and it ought to be an issue of concern. But I think it... You know, what both Susan and Rosa said about the ease with which um, former CIA directors and such like can monetize this in terms of speaking fees and the kinds of jobs they get is something that's going to be just as resonant with people who are paying attention outside of, you know, beltway circles um, as the um, uh, sort of chilling free speech effect of what Trump has done. Um, so I don't think the politics adds up to a whole lot.
1: Okay, well let's come back to that in a second. But um, Susan Rosa brought up a point, which is you know this this legal challenge Brennan may pose, and in fact, Trump at some point on Monday uh, issued out a tweet saying, "Oh, he'll never sue me, and he doesn't have the grounds, and he doesn't want to be deposed, and a whole bunch of other nonsense." Um, uh, it, as part of his sort of increasingly uh, unhinged series of tweets that have occurred over the past 24 hours prior to us taping this. Um, The question is, is there a case to be made for Brennan? Can he um, challenge the president on this? Is it worth doing? Is that standing up to the president um, for the rule of law Um, or is it an empty gesture?
2: So I don't know if Brennan should or should not uh, mount a legal challenge, but he is in a rare position where, you know, theoretically he could be successful. So ordinarily courts are not willing to look at security clearance adjudications. They say basically Congress has left this to the executive branch. It has not provided us a way uh, a way to examine this stuff. The executive branch has the most information. And so it gets to make the decisions and we don't second guess it. Um, there is one one sort of narrow instance in which courts will examine security clearance decisions. And that's whether or not the process has been fair. Um, So sort of whether or not it was a good reason or a bad reason to take away a clearance, they won't look at. Uh, But whether or not it was done properly, they will. And so that's why what Trump has done to Brennan, I think, is and, and the manner in which he's done it is potentially really significant. So there's sort of there's the regular process um, by which a security clearance might be removed for cause. And and that's something that goes through uh, through the agency as the sponsoring agencies themselves. And it's not something that has anything to do with the White House. And and it's sort of based on some kind of um, precipitating event, right? Somebody being arrested, there being some other kind of concern. Um, there's also sort of a, a separate process where uh, where when the White House or a particular agency says that it's in the national security interest to not go through this process, right? So we don't even want to have to submit the evidence sort of internally. We just want to take away someone's clearance, and we have a national security reason to do that. Uh, essentially, uh, the head of the affected agency, the head of the sponsoring agency, they just signed. So in this case, if, if Trump had gotten Gina Haspel to say, yes, uh, we should take away John Brennan's security clearance, and I certify that we don't need to use the ordinary process, and this is in the national interest, uh, that would be kind of the end of it. But what Trump did was use his inherent article to constitutional authority, which is itself, right, it's the constitutional authority that allows him to classify information in the first instance. And so everything kind of flows from that. But it, it's never been used in this way before. And so I do think that if Brennan challenges it, uh, you know, I, I think it's an open question. You know, 99 out of 100 cases, you would say, yeah, there's absolutely no chance he probably can't even establish standing. And if he could, you Know, this is a slam dunk for the government. You know, this is yet another example of Trump doing something sort of so incompetently uh, that actually it does provide a window to, for courts to come in a, and intervene.
1: Interesting. Um, very, very. I,
2: you know, David, if on. I
0: can just jump in, I yeah. you know, my guess is that the the biggest impact of this is not likely to be Legal, it's it's likely to be the ways in which this has, uh, to, to pick up on Ed's terminology, um, uh, driven a, a very, very thick, much thicker than previously wedged between the president and the sort of national security community writ large. You know, when you have so many former... Uh, CIA, high-ranking former CIA officials, and so many people like retired, I, and Corey's honor, I'm very carefully saying retired, uh, Admiral Bill McRaven, former head of Special Operations Command, saying, this is inappropriate, this is appalling, you're damaging the country by doing this, uh, and McRaven saying it would be an honor if you took away my security clearance. When you have people of that profile so visibly Splitting from the president, um, that I think is probably politically more likely to to sort of add to the you know not in and of itself change the game, but just sort of add to the steady drumbeat uh, uh, of criticism of Trump and to the problems that he's going to have in the long run well,
1: the president Ed, doesn't seem to be that uh, intimidated by all of that. Uh, he stood up for it, and then somehow he he granted. Uh, uh, permission or had a discussion with Rudy Giuliani, who you may recall is his lawyer, who put out a tweet saying the following to John Brennan.
0: I was wondering who that guy was.
1: <laughs> um, today, exactly. Today, President Trump granted our request, Jay Sekulow and me, to handle your case after threatening if you don't it would be just like Obama's red lines. Come on, John, you're not a blowhard question mark. Now, I would like you to comment on this in any way that you want. Why they would do it, uh, what it means, what kind of neurological injury Rudy Giuliani has clearly sustained um, in the past several months as he gradually loses the power of thought and speech. But go, go wherever you would like with this. Well, I
3: mean, I suppose I suppose you could interpret this goading of Brennan to, to, to sue um, as a rational calculation um, that uh, he would lose that case and Trump would benefit politically because the deep state would be suing the elected president of the United States. You could view it that way. You could view it more neurologically, psychologically, at least um as uh forgive my give my language but uh, a big dick composite competition it's like uh, you you think you're a man um and that's the kind of language trump likes and unfortunately also giuliani likes um or you could view it as a blend of the two i mean it, it's quite extraordinary to see and i know we always say this and i know there is sort of no absolute yardstick but it is quite extraordinary to see little by little incrementally Trump's language just getting worse. The frequency with which, with which his worst language um, gets tweeted out, um, you know, keeps increasing. The language he's using about Mueller uh, nowadays, calling him a thug, a disgraced thug, and the and the seventeen angry Democrats who work for him as a disgraced thug, is that we are getting more into that um, uh, that sort of. Alpha male sort of visceralism um, that I think uh, Giuliani's, um, you know, giving um, giving voice to. Also, the fact that Giuliani can can say the truth isn't truth. All of this just depends on who you are. You know, I mean, if you were a, a stoned liberal, nineteen sixties <laughs> relativist follower of Derrida or Foucault, you couldn't do better than that. Um, uh, so. Um, You know, I can't I can't psychologically give you a a final report, but I suspect it's a mixture of those um, of those things. There's there's probably some political calculation in there, too.
1: Rosa, when he said stoned 1960s follower of Foucault, did you feel like you had to step up and say, yeah, that's you or no?
0: That's (laughs) (laughs) David, I was not even born then. (laughs) No, but it it, it is just such a. Uh, bizarre and bitter irony that—that that for so much of my life, the right has been. Uh, accusing the left of so-called moral relativism, you know, the right people on the right would say things like, you know, God says that marriage is only between a man and a woman, and here are these liberals telling you that, you know, who cares? People can marry whoever they want, and that's just relativist. And you know, truth is truth, and right and right is right, and wrong is wrong. And and starting in the uh, George W. Bush presidency, we began to see a a peculiar uh, far right retreat from uh, their previous stance to support of absolute truth. Remember the, the line was attributed, I think to Dick Cheney, um, you know, that we we, we make our own reality. Those liberals think that they, you know, it matters what happens in the real world, but we know that we're a superpower and we construct our own reality, which of course, uh, in the Iraq war, we did, although it's just not the way we, we planned. Um, um, and now we have, you know, Trump who simply denounces anything he dislikes as as fake news and says things like well i never said the n word and uh if there is a tape of me saying the n word it's not me it's not real it's not my voice and rudy giuliani telling us rather bewilderingly that truth is not truth um so uh it's 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 quite an irony quite a shift well
1: the president's been shifting his legal strategies from the beginning of this series of problems, Susan. Um, And one of the people who sort of weathered those shifts is the White House counsel, Don McCann. And there was an article about him in the New York Times over the weekend uh, in which it was revealed that he had spent 30 hours talking to the Mueller people and that part of the rationale for doing this was he didn't want to get hung up on an obstruction case uh, himself. The president immediately said, well, of course, we're totally open about this. Uh, and of course I would want him to speak um, sidestepping little things like the fact that he has refused to speak to Mueller. Um, but I'm just wondering what your take is um, as somebody who has had a important position as a lawyer in a government agency on where McC- Gan is in all of this, and if, in fact, it's even possible for him to do his job, when he's perceived to be a potential turncoat, or as the president put it, a rat like John Dean.
2: So first, I, I like that uh, the president Trump thinks John Dean is the bad guy in the story, right? That's yeah, the, I love that. Uh, that's his instinct, right?
0: Poor I mean, old like, Richard Nixon. If only that <laughs> rat hadn't turned on him. Rat. He'd be president still today.
2: <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I I read the New York Times story, and I have to say, I don't entirely know what to make of it. Right? It's it seems really significant, but there's like there's just so many unanswered questions in it. To me, I think the thing that is kind of most significant is Don McGahn clearly thinks that there's some kind of criminal exposure for someone enough so that he's kind of covering his own ass on this. And so, you know, I I think that whether or not he has specific information or just, you know, he's close enough, uh, you know, to kind of read the room on it, that to me is significant. Now, McGahn is not, he's not President Trump's personal lawyer. He's White House counsel. And the White House counsel is the lawyer for the office of the presidency. And I I think the miscalculation here, and and people are sort of um, uh, focusing on Uh, you know, should he have cooperated early, right, was this sort of, you know, we're going to cooperate with the investigation early on strategy, the right one. You know, I think it's a different form of confusion here and a confusion that, that really was Trump's and Trump's alone. And that's that, he thinks everyone is his lawyer. He thinks Don McGahn is his lawyer. He thinks Jeff Sessions is his lawyer. Um, and, and sort of he doesn't, he views everything sort of through this lens of personal loyalty. Um, he also doesn't care about the details of things like attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. And so I don't know that he even has the capacity to understand, you know, when he might be waiving one thing or the other. Um, you know, so I, I look, it's uh, reportedly Don McGahn has given sort of a mix of favorite and unfavorable information uh, to Robert Mueller. Look, clearly Robert Mueller is focused on the question of obstruction of justice. And there's been mixed reporting on on to what extent uh, that really is going to be the focus of the investigation. And I, I think that sort of buttresses this notion that Mueller is not wrapping this thing up without interviewing Donald Trump. It's just there are too many questions related to obstruction that you can only answer by understanding Donald Trump's mental state. And so, you know, I, I do think that this is sort of a, a, another vote in the category of we're going to see some kind of major standoff and, and potentially Supreme Court litigation over something like a subpoena.
1: Well, that raises an interesting question. First of all, I've heard some people posit that the president couldn't or wouldn't ultimately interview Uh, be interviewed because the Justice Department, as a general rule, does not interview targets of investigation. How do you feel about that?
2: I mean, I don't, the president is not, he's not a sort of ordinary actor here. And, and I do think that Mueller considers himself bound by the uh, OLC precedent that a sitting president can't be indicted. And so I just I don't think this is a realm in which the ordinary rules apply or these sort of ordinary investigative steps apply, because this is not something in which, uh, you know, it all comes to a head in a trial. And then if prosecutors or investigators don't get what they want, uh, you know, in voluntary interviews or, or in grand jury testimony well, you know, there, there's a trial that's going to uh, unearth that information in another way, right? I, I think sort of a report is the only place that this is headed. You know, so, so I think it's a little bit of just a category error in that the president is different from anybody else and not just different in the way Trump wants to wants to say, you know, being above the law and, and immune from all this stuff, but is, is just really differently situated in terms of his relationship to the Justice Department.
1: Well, Rosa, it's you know doesn't really get to the 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 question about whether Don McGann can actually have a working relationship with Trump, which, by the way, is related to the question about whether Trump can have a working relationship with the intelligence community. If he doesn't trust anybody around him, he's got a problem. But you know, it 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 does put him in a bit of a difficult position if the White House Counsel is not perceived to be. on team trump uh do, do, do you think that's unsustainable
0: i suspect don McGahn is not gonna last all that much longer in his current position because uh once once trump turns against you it seems pretty clear that uh careers are short-lived and mcgann has uh you know made uh, a fatal mistake um, of announcing publicly that he regards himself as as, as he should uh, and as is his uh, professional obligation, not as Trump's personal lawyer, but as, as uh, a lawyer for the prerogatives of the presidency, first and foremost. Um, and, you know, from Trump's perspective, uh, everybody is supposed to be his personal minion. Um, and if you say you're not, that makes him very, very irritated. Um, and worse, I think the, the fact that despite Trump's very defensive response, to those New York Times stories on McGann's um, interviews with Mueller's office, uh, you know he's poor. Poor McGann. Uh, I don't have much pity for him, but I have a little bit. Uh, is now in the uncomfortable position of knowing that trump knows that he said things that trump is not aware of and they're never going to trust him they're never going to trust him again you know no matter what he says now uh i think he has put himself in a in an impossible situation you know i mean to me the only baffling question about people like don mcgahn you know you know why is he still there frankly um but i can't imagine he's going to last much longer
1: well speaking of this issue of time and lasting longer you know I, i i had a lunch discussion with a very plugged in guy, Washington kind of guy, very plugged in. And he's like, well, our expectation is this is all getting wrapped up in the next month or so. And I I was like, well, how's that possible? If, you know, Michael, the president hasn't been deposed. Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer in New York, is just now getting into the short strokes of, federal pressure and apparently will be charged with some bank fraud crimes very shortly. There hasn't been any movement against Roger Stone. There hasn't been any movement against WikiLeaks. There hasn't been any, um, uh, you know, of the other things that might well have come up in the course of something like this, uh, having to do with uh, uh, finances and, and, and so forth. Ed, do you think it's reasonable to assume this thing is going to get wrapped up soon? or Or is it would it be more your expectation that it's going to go on for a long, long time?
3: Yeah, I'd be surprised if it was going to be wrapped up within the next month, not least because I, I think uh, Mallah is going to respect um, uh, the um the rule um I mean, informalish rule that you know between Labor Day and election day. Um, he, he should, um, you know, not make sort of politically things that could have a political impact on on the election. And the fact that, you know, two years ago, Comey did precisely that is going is to be there in his mind. Also, um, you know, I think if he was going to do something big, it would have been in between the end of the Manafort trial, the first Manafort trial um, and Labor Day, um, and then allow things to settle um, at least publicly um, until the election. Uh, and the Manafort, you know, uh, uh, verdict hasn't yet come in. It might have in between, you know, this recording and the, the, the broadcast um, get going out. But um, uh, so far, it's been, you know, three days. Um, and uh, if the if the verdict comes uh, comes out as sort of guilty and all counts and you know two consecutive life sentences, then uh, you know the leverage that um, that the, the leverage that um, Trump's going to have with a pardon. It's going to make a very different sort of um, impact than if he were um, declared innocent on some or all of these uh, charges. If there were some kind of a hung jury, um, so I, I, you know, I'm just sort of speculating out of nothing here. But I would be very surprised. It doesn't have the feel of something that's about to be, that's about to be wrapped up.
1: Susan, you're wrapped up in this on a daily basis, talking to people about it every day. What is your what is your imagined timeline
2: so i think uh you have to acknowledge that Robert Mueller, anyone who sort of purports to understand Robert Mueller's thinking is, uh, is making it up. He's been, uh, you know, he holds things incredibly close, and every major investigative step we've seen has come as an absolute shock that nobody saw coming. So I think you sort of have to caveat that up front. You know, that said, look, the president's lawyers have been talking about this being just about to be wrapped up for over a year and so right it's always kind of you know two weeks away a month away from from everything you know right after thanksgiving this is all going to be over and uh you know i'd always assume that that was just a strategy for handling the president um you know sort of trying to keep his temper in check but the persistence of it has made me think that that maybe it's just a form of of self-delusion um you know look what Mueller is from what we can see from the outside you, know, you have you have the Mueller investigation, right? Sort of this core investigation within his mandate. And then you have all these other things that Mueller is spinning out entirely, right? So the Michael Cohen case, he's given over. So the Southern District of New York, parts of the Manafort case, he's handed over to the Eastern District of Virginia. And so, you know, there's no longer one investigation. There's no longer one thing that gets wrapped up in a, in a neat bow, right? This is a sprawling thing that actually has a life of its own. And, and I think a life that would endure even if uh, uh, even if Mueller you know was fired tomorrow, I do think to the extent we want to guess or, or sort of try and tease out a roadmap, you ha- you can't look at the news stories. You have to look at the indictments because that's the only hard evidence we have in front of us. And if you sort of map the indictments thus far, the first one against this Russian you know troll farm in Russia is is. Russian activity outside the United States. The second indictment, this big GRU indictment, is Russian activity inside the United States. And by the way, it describes criminal conduct, although it doesn't charge any uh, U.S. person, on the part of Americans, right? So it talks about this congressional candidate soliciting uh, uh, information on his opponent in a way that uh, a reasonable person might assume uh, violated federal law. It talks about Roger Stone in a way that uh, a reasonable person might think, hmm, that sounds a lot like someone who's about to be indicted. So I think if you sort of look at the investigation as uh, like a tightening noose or or something that's getting closer and closer to the bullseye, thus far he is working his way in. I think it is—it's uh, reasonable to assume or expect that the, the next major indictment and that we will see another major indictment is going to be. U.S. persons helping uh, the Russian effort or acting within the United States and query whether or not there's even sort of a fourth step of, you know, someone related to to Trump's inner circle. Um, So, you know, my gut says this is is nowhere close to being wrapped up. You know, that said, the next major thing we might see might not be an indictment at all. Uh, It might be litigation over this question of the ability to subpoena presidential testimony. That's something that actually could come to a head pretty quickly um, and then sort of dominate the investigation for for some period of time. It would be litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and the answer to that litigation would have a lot of impact on uh, on the rest of the investigation. So you know, I, I think if I was if I was betting, I would say you know we're nowhere near being done. Um, you know, that said, like you know nobody knows what Robert Mueller is up to.
1: Um, That, by the way, is a very thoughtful way to deconstruct this, and it ends up in the same place that I tend to end up, which is there are a bunch of pieces of this that seem to have been plotted out almost in advance that have yet to take place, and that's why it would take a a, a bit longer. Um, Rosa, do you have anything to add to that, or would you like to move on to the much harder question that I have teed up for you?
0: No, I, I think Susan's made a really important point that everyone should keep in mind, that that 99.9% of what you see in the media that says Mueller is about to do X, Y, or Z, or this is about to happen, is, is just garbage. We have no idea um, and it's wishful thinking I think, uh, to a significant extent on the part of those who, you know, would love to see Mueller suddenly, you know, issue subpoenas or indictments tomorrow. Uh, so so, you know, we'll find out when we find out. <laughs> and that's all there is to say about it.
1: All right. Well, let me ask you one last question. I'll, I'll give each of you, you know, 60 seconds to answer this question, uh, which was teed up here by Ed. Um, which is to say that the Manafort trial is, uh, the jury is still deliberating as we tape this. It's quite possible that over the course of the next several days, uh, when people are listening to this, the jury will have come back with a verdict. They might find him guilty of all accounts, guilty of some of the accounts. There might be a hung jury. Uh, and, and, you know, as a pod that tapes it a couple of days in advance, we have to anticipate all of those with our analysis. Um, So go ahead, Rosa. Give me some analysis on this verdict that hasn't happened yet.
0: (laughs) I don't have any analysis on the verdict that hasn't happened. I mean, I I will say two things. One is... It's an extraordinarily complicated case. Uh, The charges are all ones that, you know, people who are specialists in understanding this stuff have been wrestling over this material for many, many months. And this poor jury is being asked to make sense of it in a few short days, so I don't envy them. Um, They're they're very technical uh, charges in a lot of ways. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think there were 18 charges... uh, uh, you know, my if I were a betting person, which I'm, I'm not really, I would say he'll be acquitted of some and convicted of others, and I have no idea which will be which. Um, the other thing, though, I think it's worth saying uh, that's really important to remember is that um, this is not the only trial of Paul Manafort. You know, if Manafort ends up getting acquitted of uh, some or all of these current charges, he still faces another trial. Uh, sometime in the fall um, in Washington, D.C., uh, on what in many ways are the much more explosive uh, charges, politically speaking, in terms of uh, acting as a foreign agent lying to the FBI, the charges that are actually much closer to uh, misdeeds that might involve Donald Trump in his inner circle, as opposed to just Paul Manafort's general crookedness.
1: Uh, that was pretty good. Ed, do you want to take a shot at giving a capsule analysis of something that hasn't happened yet?
3: uh well you know i i I don't think he's a good man um as um, Trump uh, pointed out so regardless of what the um uh, the verdict is uh, you know I think this has been a very educational trial as to how um uh, you know a prominent lobbyist for um, some very questionable regimes can uh, you know until Uh, Arguably, a pretty black swan event hit Paul Manafort. There are other Paul Manaforts around, but you know, uh, Paul Manafort's the only one who was um, chairman, albeit briefly, of um, Trump's campaign. Um, That this uh, I hope provides a broader education of of the sort of kleptocracy we're, we're seeing, kleptocratic habits um, that we're seeing um, in modern day democracy, including in Washington, D.C. You know, and so as ever, there's a, a sort of kernel of truth to what Trump says when he when he talks about the swamp. He is, of course, way worse than the swamp. The swamp is getting swampier. But the swamp has existed and been getting worse for a long time. And I think the Manafort trial is a very, very good educational Um, moment for for looking at Washington, for looking in the mirror.
1: So with 60 seconds to go, Susan, I give you the same opportunity, or I'll extend it a step further and allow you to provide an analysis of the pardon that that Trump will give Manafort uh, once he's convicted.
2: You know, I'll take the bait on your original question and and speculate wildly. Uh, You know, I think acquittal, an outright acquittal is almost impossible. I mean, if that happens, that is a truly shocking, stunning result. Um, You know, a a partial conviction, partial acquittal, I I think is a reflection just of the nature of of really complex charges. And so I don't think that's all that different than uh, than a conviction on all charges. I think the one wild card thing that we might see uh, is, is a hung jury. Um, and if that's the case, I think that is really powerful evidence that sort of Trump's attacks on the Mueller investigation are working, uh, either because this jury pool was amenable to it or because it caused the judge to behave in particular ways. And while I, I don't think Mueller cares all that much about sort of the PR and you know whether he or Trump are, are leading in favorability polls, I do think that if there is a hung jury or an acquittal here, that is going to put put a lot of wind in the sails of people who are saying there just there isn't anything yeah. here. Um, and so, you know, yes, there's going to be another Manafort, uh, Manafort trial. Uh, you know, if, if he's actually convicted here, he might decide to cooperate uh, and we won't see another trial. And, and that would be sort of game changing. But I, I do think that if we see a hung jury or an acquittal here, that's that's the sign of something really, really significant going on and, and something significant happening that that people are missing. Right, that it's having the kind of impact Trump's sort of campaign against Mueller is having the kind of impact that that people haven't grasped, at, you know, sort of how effective it is.
1: Well, I have to say that hasn't happened, but as you describe it, I've become slightly nauseous. So yeah, you did it <laughs>
2: here,
0: you did, but the man often <laughs> worrying, off I've been worrying off about ostrich ostrich that codes. too. Yeah, I,
1: yeah. I it, it is it is something uh, we genuinely must consider, and I think.
0: Well, and, and as we know, it doesn't it doesn't take much to get a hung jury. It
2: takes literally one person.
1: Well, exactly right. And you not only had the Manafort thrown into jail because of jury tampering, but you have the president visibly on television jury tampering in this thing. Uh, and there are a lot of ways to get to a jury in this kind of case uh, directly, indirectly. Um, and and that, you know, can lead to these kind of outcomes. Would be very, very disturbing thing. Obviously, we will follow that, and following the success of this effort at guessing at outcomes and doing analysis of things that hasn't happened yet, perhaps on our next broadcast we will do an analysis of the 2018 election results. Because why wait? You know, we could just dive right in and and analyze whatever results we think may happen. Um, in the interim of that, and before I get to thanking these folks, I do want to say. Uh, that, uh, as we've mentioned in the past, we are moving forward and expanding things with Deep State Radio and the Deep State Radio Network, and that's going to result in a whole bunch of exciting developments. New podcasts, new pod content, video content, written content, all available at deepstateradionetwork.com. The website, The website will go live the week of September 10th. You'll start to see that. And we will also or offer a whole bunch of uh, special uh, privileges to those of you who feel you're among our closest and most active supporters uh, as Deep State Radio uh, Network members. Uh, And if you want to get information on this, just go to DeepStateRadioNetwork.com right now. There's a button you can click on. You could register. Give us your email address. And we will send you updates and we'll also send you some special offers that will enable you to get in on all of this exciting stuff uh, in, in special ways and with discounts and so forth. So, if you're one of our real Deep State Radio nerds who's there, there on a regular basis and wants to support the podcast, please go to DeepStateRadioNetwork.com right now. Give us your name, your email address, and we will get back to you very shortly. In the meantime, Thank you to Susan Hennessy. Always great to have you on. Thank you to Rosa Brooks out there in the wild, wild west. Uh, Thank you to uh, Ed Luce, who's in the city with the big shoulders. And we will join you all again very shortly on the next episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media.